Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, change over to Galatians chapter 5. And yes, I will one day do a message then on what I just said about the canonical historical books of the Bible, but not today. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, if you're reading one of our pew Bibles, it is page 976. Galatians 5, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Thinking about Galatians chapter 5 and the topic of growing in gospel character, and we've been on the subject for a couple of weeks now. The first week was dedicated just to providing the structure of the passage itself, and last week we were talking about the challenges to gospel character, those being the desires of the flesh and the two natures that we have as Christians battling within us. This morning we talk about the constitution of that gospel character, and it is the Holy Spirit Himself. One of the benefits uh, we have of going through portions of Scripture like we do is we get a chance to zero in or realize areas that we need to really emphasize and develop more fully. It came out very aware to me this week that we really need to do a series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, You know, in our uh, summer months, I, I take the liberty of doing more topical series. And this, for example, this summer, I'm excited to be doing a, a 10-week series on the gospel. Now, some of you might think, wow, 10-week series on the gospel, that seems quite a lot, isn't it? And that's because there's a notion amongst evangelicals that the gospel is kind of the, the ABCs or the bunny slope or the, the, the kind of thing that gets you into what a Christian's all about. But if you read the gospel themselves, ironically enough, and the rest of Scripture, you recognize that the gospel is by far and away not just the calling card, the entryway into the Christian faith. It is the, the supporting infrastructure of the entire view of reality, that the gospel is the thing that binds it all together, and to understand the gospel and its implications is really, in effect, to understand how to navigate through life. So 10 weeks is really not that long, but all that to say is that this summer I won't be able to do a series on the Holy Spirit, but next summer, so spring of, or summer of 2018, I hope you're here, we will look at in depth the nature, the power, the gift, and the fruits of the Spirit because they're so important, important to the Christian life. But for now, we're going to wrap up our three-part series on gospel character. We learned so far that as Christians, we have a dual nature that there is the the capacity that the old self, the old nature, which has the capacity to serve self, sin, and Satan, and then there is the new nature that we have because of the work of Jesus Christ, that has the capacity to serve others, righteousness, and God. Our old nature is characterized, as we learned from last week, by these things called the desires of the flesh. And depending upon how long you've been a Christian and how long God's been working in your life, these desires of the flesh can actually be harder and harder to recognize. 
You see, as you've been a Christian, there are no longer the obvious and blatantly, uh, blatant, explicit desires for that which is wrong. Like that may have been the case when you were a younger Christian, uh, that you desired the things that just weren't supposed to be desired, but as you've been a Christian and God's been working in your life, they don't become so obvious anymore. And as a matter of fact, we talked about the desires of the flesh can actually be good things that have morphed into ultimate things in our hearts. And as a result, it hijacks the allegiance in our hearts that we ought to have and reserve for the Creator and pledges us to something in the creation, whether that's a a thing or a relationship or an accomplishment. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be emotional, psychological. It could be sexual, financial. It could be anything that we tend to gravitate towards more than our Creator from which we were created for. But the new nature in Christ fights against that drift in our hearts. It's always fighting to prevent us from being these functional idolaters and always fighting to bring that allegiance back to God Himself. And we talked about that. It's a very gradual process. It's a process that requires both a divine and a human component to it. And as a result, it requires from us effort, struggle, warfare, even suffering. Now, if you recall from part one, So, the key to gospel character is found in verses 24 and 25 of Galatians 5, and it itself has two components, crucify the flesh, live by the Spirit. Last week's message was essential in understanding how do we crucify the flesh. This morning, it's essential to understanding how we live by the Spirit. In order to do that, I need to make three important points. The three points I'm going to make are on the screen behind me. Number one, we need to understand what I call the circle of sanctification. Now, if you're in your mind hearing Robert De Niro saying the circle of trust, I thought the same thing, but so it's the circle of sanctification. That is simply a a $10 word that means that theologians use to describe the process by which we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are being sanctified, set apart to be like Christ. So we need to understand the circle of sanctification. Secondly, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we need to then cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. It's important to note that it it almost necessarily has to go in that order. We understand something, we be something, and then we cultivate it. So last week, we spoke about the dynamic of sanctification, the dynamic of this change in gospel growth, having two components to it, a divine element and a human element, and we saw that the Scriptures were very clear on this, and we took a look at some of them. This morning, I want to show you one more from 2 Peter chapter 1. It's on the screens behind me. You don't need to look it up. This is the kind of thing where it's just powerful. Notice Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, His, God's divine power, has granted to us. Notice, stop right there. God is giving something to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, is God just giving us some of the things that we need? that we, the rest is just going to hope we figure out somehow on our own? No, according to Peter, God has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Well, how does He do this? Through the knowledge of Him, Jesus, who called us, notice this dynamic of back and forth, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, right? It is not Jesus calling us so that He can fulfill all our wants and desires and needs so we can be glorified. He's calling us to His own glory and excellence. 
He does that through the knowledge of Him. God is doing this. You see this dynamic. But notice what He says in verse 5, for this very reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness. So again, we have this dynamic divine element and a human component all working together as we are made more and more like Jesus Christ. Your uh, early church father, Augustine, said this, brilliant, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. I love that. Without God, we simply cannot do this thing called being a Christian. But without us, God will not. So we need to understand, how does this divine and human dance work itself out? So to do that, I have an illustration on the screens behind me. I'm not an artist, keep that in mind. So these two circles, what I call the circle of sanctification, that outer ring represents things that you might have a genuine concern about. You genuinely are concerned about these things, but you don't have the ability or the calling in your life to affect any change, and so therefore, they're beyond your responsibility. In these things, we are called to entrust them to God, to His plans, to His purposes, to His timing. And by and large, these are the things that are in the world around us, outside of us, what God is up to, the, the way others live their lives. We can be genuinely concerned about them, but by and large, we can only entrust to God what He is doing and have trust in Him. The inner ring, however, represents the, the inner circle, the things that, that God has called you and I to do that we cannot pass on to anyone else. These are the things that we are responsible for. Our response is to faithfully obey. By and large, these are the things that are inside of us. So your actions, your choices, your decisions, those are the things that cannot be passed off onto others, those God holds you firmly responsible for, and our response is to obey. So for some example, uh, peace in the Middle East, concerned about that. Unless you are an ambassador to the Middle East, there's not much you can do about it, so you entrust them to God, right? The salvation of your children. You just need to entrust those to God. Abstain from gossip. Well, that's my responsibility. That's something I need to faithfully obey. Do not provoke your children to anger. That is my responsibility. I need to faithfully obey. You see how this goes. But there is a problem, and that problem is we tend to get these circles all out of whack. So this first circle is what I call God's mini messiahs. They take that area of responsibility and they just blow them out of proportion, right? And, and really what this is, is, in essence, is a lack of trust in what God is doing. We kind of feel that maybe God isn't sure or not clear what He's doing, so you need to get involved and help that process along. A clear example of this is uh, oftentimes us want the salvation of a loved one. We get all, God needs my help to make this thing happen. So the circle of responsibility is overinflated. They become God's mini messiahs, and in some way, unknown to you and I, they have appointed themselves to be the fourth member of the Trinity, right? So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you. So the model they have is God loves you, but I have a wonderful plan for your life. So if you just listen to me, it'll be okay. See, overinflated sense of responsibility because it's a lack of trust in what God is doing. Now, some people, though, 
are what I call God's vacationers. And that's represented by this next graphic. If the first people had overinflated responsibility, these other people, it's down right here, and they're, they're just completely irresponsible. They're, just, they're, they're on God's vacation. They're just not engaged. If the first was a lack of trust, these people, it's a lack of obedience. If the first group needed to just rest in the character of God and His promises and what His plans are and just trust in Him, this second group needs to recognize that there is their demands and commands in Scripture that they must faithfully obey and work out their salvation with fear and trembling, Second uh, Philippians chapter 2, right? But this is hard to spot because a lot of times it sounds pretty pious, right? Oh, brother, sister, just you got to let go and let God, right? Or the theologically astute type, hey, God is sovereign. He holds the counsel of all things in His will. Why bother? He's going to do what He wants to do anyway. You've heard these kinds of things. So one group's uh, the mini-messiahs. The other group is God's vacationers. But most people are right here in this last one. They're just confused. The Bible says that? I'm supposed to do what? Is that how God is? These people just seem to lack an understanding because a lot of times it's la- we're not paying attention. We haven't taken the time to hear, to learn, to understand. We need to take advantage of the resources that are in Christ, His Word, discipling relationships, accountability in the local church. So we need to understand what is God's part and what is our part. And one of the ways we do that and I, and I know this is going to sound very hypocritical coming from me, but here's the two words. You need to slow down. I know. I need to take my own medicine. What do you mean slow down? We need to slow down. One of the advantages when I was in college in learning languages, um, particularly the languages of the two of the three languages that the Bible's written in, is you, had to t- you were like a kindergartner learning to read all over again and you didn't take for granted any of the adjectives or participles or the verbs or the relationships between this and that. Everything was a grueling process of what is that word, and how does it relate to this word? What's that word? But the, 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 the result was amazing, not because Greek or Hebrew is magic, because you slowed down. You said, oh, wait, God has granted to us that means I'm the passive recipient of the action. He gave something to me, all things, not, not just some things. He could have used some things, but he said all things. God gave me all things for what? For life and godliness. Whoa! You see, in our culture, we take advantage for granted that we can just read this in our own language. And so we have these you know, one-year study or read through the Bible plans, right? Those are good, right? But if you're like me and you're on one of those, how many chapters a day do you have to read? at least like three, right? And then that day when you're on Psalm 119, that huge chapter, you still have to read that and a couple more. So what do you do in your 20 minutes if you can find it? You get your coffee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, boom, checked it off. I'm out of here. And we miss that on every page of Scripture, there are commands, there are examples, there are promises, there are encouragements. Commands to what we should be doing, encouragements to rest, principles to follow, examples to watch, so we know, oh, this is what God says He's going to do, and this is what He's calling me to do. 
And I can't be the over-responsible or irresponsible, nor do I want to be confused. I just want to understand where's that sweet spot where I faithfully obey and then entrust to God the rest, yeah? So we need to understand that, but that's only the first one. The second point is that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Understanding and understanding is, is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need to be as well as know, and that's where we talk about being filled with the Spirit. So in Galatians 5, three times Paul uh, writes about a relationship that we have with the Spirit, and he uses these verbs, walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. In verse 16, it is a command, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, it is a result of the command. If you walk by the Spirit, there's no law over you. And then verse 25 is the reality that is a result of that command. If you walk by the Spirit, there's no law over you, but the Spirit is constantly trying to make you like Christ, so you need to keep step with what He's doing. See, that's how that flows. Now, the, and you say, how do you get there? The interpretive key to Galatians 5.18 is actually in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18. So, let's turn to Ephesians 5.18, just two pages to the right, and you'll be right where you need to be. In Ephesians 5, like Galatians 5, three times Paul uses a word to describe our relationship with the Spirit, and in Ephesians 5, three times, it's the same word used in Galatians 5. 18. It is the word walk. And in Ephesians 5, he says three times how we ought to walk when he's talking about living the Christian life. Then in chapter 5, verse 18, he uses this phrase. Let me read it to you. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The expression filled with the Spirit and the expression walk by the Spirit are syntactically identical to one another. In other words, in their structure, they're identical, which allows for the comparison, but the voice of the verb is different, which is the interpretive key. All that means, let me explain. In chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians, Paul says, we need to be filled a command to allow the Spirit to rule your life. But notice, notice, we have to allow this to happen to us, but it's not necessarily us making it happen. Does that make sense? You see, the, this is where the, the grammar, when you're learning and you're reading and you're thinking about it, you realize, wait, Paul's giving me a command to do something. That's what he's, he's commanding something of me. But he's commanding that I let something be done to me. So while I have to allow it to happen, I'm not the one responsible for making it happen. His phrase about being drunk is really important to understand this. Paul contrasts being drunk with being filled with the Spirit. So when someone is drunk, we say that they are under the what? Under the influence. So what Paul is writing in Ephesians 5, 18, it says, do not be filled with wine. Don't be under that influence. Rather, be under the controlling influence of the Spirit of God. That's what he's getting at. He is not saying, as some people in the church put out, don't be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Spirit and acting in some crazy way. That is not Paul's point. He's saying, don't be like you are when you're drunk, under the influence and control of alcohol, but be under the influence and control 
of the Spirit of God. And the surrounding context of Ephesians 5 teaches the Spirit's filling is associated with a couple of items. Look at verse 15. The Spirit's filling is associated with the pursuit of wisdom. Verse 17, the Spirit's filling is associated with discerning God's will. Verses 19 and 20, the Spirit's filling is associated by joyous worship and gratitude and thanksgiving given to God. The Spirit's filling is associated with godly leadership and submission in all of our relationships, verses 21 to 33. So we are filled with the Spirit when we are opening ourselves to the third member of the triune God, emotionally, volitionally, cognitively, and when we are allowing Him to be the influence, the primary influence in our life, the results are staggering. Look on the screen behind me, John 14, 26, and, and 1 Corinthians 2, 13 says that the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit, we will be aware of all spiritual realities. And according to 2 Corinthians 4.18, spiritual realities is the way you make sense of all reality. Remember that. So we're, well, the Spirit will make us understand spiritual realities. And in Romans 8.14 and following, the Spirit, when we're under His influence, He leads us in the way of God. The Spirit also empowers us in Ephesians 3.16 when we're under His influence. The Spirit gives unity and promotes fellowship in the body of believers, Philippians chapter 2. And then Ephesians 4.30, the Spirit, when we're under His influence, He seals us for God's great day of redemption. So the, the first need we have is to understand how does this work? What is God's part? What is my part? And the second reality is we need to be filled or under the influence of the Spirit. And Paul just talked about what that means, pursuing wisdom discerning God's will, joyous, being involved in worshiping God and giving thanks, and then these wonderful relationships, these healthy relationships in all aspects of our lives of godly leadership and submission. He says this, you are filled with the Spirit. When that happens, we then begin to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. That's our third point. Back to uh, uh, Galatians chapter 5. And I said um, when we were talking about this series that I would spend some time talking about the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But as I was reading it this week, I, I really think that that was that important. I mean, you, you can see those three verses starting in verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and the list goes on. You don't want any of these to rule your life. Oh, whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian, whether or not that you agree with everything, clearly when you read that, you could say, I don't want those to dominate my life. And the destruction, and that's what that list is signifying, is, is complete. Notice the first three terms are referring to a, a sexual destruction. The second two are religious destruction, whether it's, a, whether it's a traditional religious concept through idolatry or, or witchcraft or sorcery. Relational destruction makes up the biggest part of the list, eight words, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, and then finally, personal destruction, drunkenness, and orgies, this, this concept of a completely out-of-control situation. When Paul is talking about the works of the flesh, there is a, a complete out-of-control inability to exercise any restraint, and we see these in our culture. Maybe that last category, instead of personal destruction, we could just talk about substance abuse. 
and the way we are living in a culture that is out of control. And here's the frightening thing. Paul says, and things like these. So that's not even an exhaustive list. But the point can be made. Paul says, these are the work, works of the flesh. And the heartbreaking result is none of them inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. But then Paul follows this horrific laundry list in verses 19 to 21 with a list I do want to read because we need to hear it after that list. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love the fact that Paul uses, we're so used to it, right, but he uses a metaphor of fruit. He uses a metaphor that already is getting at the very dynamic we've been talking about, isn't he? Number one, I just also love the fact that if you like fruit, you should be reading that. And, and don't read it through your theological Christian lenses, as we so easily can do. Just remember fruit, right? How beautiful and simple and yet nourishing to the body and refreshing when we eat it. And yet the dynamic behind it, there is a reality is we need to till the soil. We need to work with the dirt. We need to plant the seed. We need to water. We need to do all these things. But at the end of the day, do you or I, does anybody actually make this apple grow? No. But yet, unless we do those very things, a lot of times these fruit won't grow. And I love that Paul uses a metaphor that captures the dynamic that we've been talking about that we cooperate with God in what He's doing, and as a result, beautiful fruit will grow in our lives. As we faithfully obey what God has called me to be responsible for, as I entrust into His care, exercising trust that He will do all things good, as I am seeking to be filled with His Spirit, I begin to cultivate this beautiful fruit in my life. And yes, there's work to be done, but here's the amazing thing. The fruit just grows, and we just notice it, that it's there, and we partake of it, and it's beautiful. And, and Paul gives us this list, this list of nine fruit, and if you look at it carefully, it is broken down in three sections of three. John Stott, this amazing theologian from England, said these first three have to do with a Christian's posture to God. He writes this, a Christian's first love, there's a first fruit, is to be toward God. And by the way, I think that's the fountainhead that any other fruit's going to come from a love for God. His chief joy, the second fruit, is to see God's glory. And his deepest peace is the peace he has with God. So love, joy, peace, all describing the Christian's posture upward to God. And the second set of three they're not going kind of vertical, but they actually go horizontal. Instead of going Godward, they are manward. Patience, kindness, goodness. Patience with people that annoy you or delay your timetable who are different from you. Kindness, it's a charitable disposition. It's a generosity towards other people. Can you see their point of view? Can you recognize you are sitting in a room full of people who are struggling deeply or are you so overtaken by your own trials and difficulties that you forget that we're all living in a fallen world? 
and then goodness. So it doesn't refer to sinlessness. It's, it's talking about integrity of character and an uprightness of heart. So are you being sincere? Are you being integrous in all of your dealings? That's, that's what he's talking about. And notice, if you would, that some of these fruit, they assume hardship, don't they? They assume people are going to try your patience. They assume that people aren't going to get your point of view. So much of the fruit assumes difficulty, that rather than walk away from difficulty, we ought to see these moments as God's means by which this fruit is being cultivated. I remember when I first had my first son, Asher, and my level of patience was so thin. Now, 14, 15 years later, and three other kids, I'd like to think, boy, my patience threshold has gone so much, grown so much more. We grow in these attributes when they're being challenged, not when they don't exist. And I often say, people leave churches for the exact reason God gave us churches. What other environment can we learn about exercising forgiveness and patience than in an environment full of sinful people, right? I mean, isn't this the actual laboratory that all of our sinfulness comes out and gets exposed, put on the table, but isn't this the exact same arena where we can say, ah, it's okay, I'm that way too. So the very forgiveness you need from me, probably next week or next month, I'll need from you. So let me give it to you now because you're going to give it to me later. And in the process, we all learn to be like Christ, yeah? So that's the second set of three. And the last set of three seem to describe the individual himself, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness, obviously, describing the reliability of the Christian man or woman. Do you keep your word? Do people have to keep reminding you to do the things that you say you're going to do? Are you dependable? That's a big one. Right? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is what? From the evil one. Do we keep our word? Because in keeping our word, we are much like our heavenly Father. Right? Gentleness. Strength under control is basically gentleness. Are you secure enough in who you are to not have to demand your rights? Even if they are yours to be demanded, are you secure enough? Do not have to demand them. Are you strong enough to let your vulnerabilities be shown? Are you argumentative? Are you defensive? Are you abrupt? Are you rude? Or do you have strength under control? I love that definition of gentleness. Self-control. Do you control your appetites, whatever they are, food, sex, thirst, whatever it might be, or do they control you? Do you control your emotions, right? jealousy, anger, desire, or do they control you? You know, one of the strongest ways modern Christians can probably give one of the strongest and simplest testimonies to our world in a culture that is indulging in self, indulging itself into a, a oblivion, with no sense of restraint or control, one of the strongest testimonies we can be is just the people who exercise self-control right? When we live in a world that's just all about indulging, we say, no, 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 I'm exercising self-control, whatever it might be. 
So we have these uh, three kind of triads of gospel character. There is an upward element, there's an outward element, and there is an inward element. And they naturally are produced in the lives of Christians as they are led by the Spirit. It's no wonder that Paul says, look, when you're living like this, there can be no law. Verse 18, he says it, and again in verse 23, he says, there's no law. Because remember, the law was given to expose our sin, to restrict our behavior, and point us to Christ. And, and Paul's saying, if you're living like this, the law does you no good. You don't need it anymore. It's not about checking off things. It's naturally flowing from your life as you're bearing this fruit. Now, one last thing I want to point out. It's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, remember, in the being filled with the Spirit, there was also this dynamic of an outward… Out, upward, outward, and inward element. There is the inward element of pursuing wisdom and discerning the will of God. There is an upward element in giving joyous thanksgiving and worship of God. And then there is an outward element as we all live and lead and submit in godly relationships. So there is this upward element, an outward element, and an inward element, just like the fruit of the Spirit has an upward, outward, and inward. But notice this, those three correlate beautifully to the purposes of the church, that there is an upward, there is an outward, and there is an inward element. We exalt the Lord for who He is, we evangelize the world, and we edify the believer. That's my point, that both individually and corporately, we are called all to do the same kind of thing, that there is an upward element in our lives, an outward element, and an inward element. And they all kind of fuel and feed off one another in the context of a local church. It's amazing. God's plan in organizing our own lives in the context of a body of believers. And that's why Christianity, it is not me and God at Starbucks. It is me and God and His people as He is doing this work in me as He's doing this work in us. Keeping in mind that fruits like this apple or oranges or grapefruit take time and patience in all of us as we're bearing that fruit. So, as we've been thinking about gospel character, we recognize in Galatians 5.16 that it is commanded of us, it is expected of us, but we know that the battle is fierce, verses 17 and 18, because we deal with these desires of the flesh, often those good things becoming ultimate things in our hearts because we have these two natures, and they are constantly struggling one against the other. But the key in verse 24 and 25 is that we crucify the flesh and we live to the Spirit. And that's what we've been thinking about for three weeks now. There's a lot more that could be said about this, but I think that's enough to, for the Spirit to use in our own lives. And we want to be thinking about this as we turn our attention to the epistle of James, which we're going to pick up in, in May. Because Galatians, we have been focusing on fighting for the gospel, understanding what that means, and this whole time we've been thinking about that concept, whereas James will now start us thinking about living out the gospel and what that means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together and to worship and to fellowship and to hear and study Your Word. Lord, I pray that as it's been so encouraging for me that it is so for my brothers and sisters that corporately we become together an amazing testimony of the fruit of the Spirit as well as individually. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.